Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and joining me today is veteran co-host, mother, wife, doula, chiropractor, and so much more, Dr. Kristen Polisi. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You know, many of our patients are pregnant with their first babies, and they're in their mid to late 30s and often go on to have multiple kids. However, some of them are really nervous about having babies over the age of 35 because they're labeled as either being of advanced maternal age or having a geriatric pregnancy. Sometimes their doctors are nervous too and consult with perinatologists to determine if additional testing or interventions are suggested. Today, our guest is both a practicing OBGYN and perinatologist, and he's over 35. And he's come to share his expertise and thoughts on female fertility and age. Dr. Emiliano Shavira, welcome back to the podcast. And I'm very anxious about the notion of getting pregnant. Over 35? Yeah. Is it just because you're over 35? <laughs> That's mainly the issue. Yeah, I thought it so. It bothers me. Yeah. In your mid-20s, it would have been totally <laughs> right. okay. Right. But now he resonates. I really want to help our listeners understand how age may or may not affect um, fertility, pregnancy, childbirth, and postnatal health, and kind of what sort of things to take into consideration when planning the right time to have a baby, um, and and what to do if you're having baby at different ages. Um, so the biological clock, the proverbial biological clock, in my view, all things that are alive have a life cycle. And a life cycle has four parts to it. We are born, we grow, we reproduce, and we die. And, uh, you know, there's a little timeline in which that happens for different living things. Um, and along the timeline, there are some predictable things that take place. Uh, when it comes to fertility, that's true, too, both in men and women, although it's different for men and women and uh, more dramatic, I think, for women. So the relationship between the age... And female fertility is sometimes called a woman's biological clock. If we can explore that a little further, where does the clock start? I would say with menarche. What is menarche? Menarche is when uh, a woman starts having periods. However, I would say the clock starts even before that. Oh, good. Let's fight it out. <laughs> <laughs> you're, t you're bigger than I am. Well, I'm the referee. I'm the tiny one. So. Okay. <laughs> Um, it, so actually, uh, I would say the clock starts even in utero because a woman is born with all the eggs that she will have during her whole entire life. And those are present when that woman is actually a fetus in her mother's womb. Um, so I would say the clock starts in utero. That should make people less anxious. <laughs> <laughs> At your second birthday party, the clock is ticking. <laughs> but if you if you meant to say, I guess uh, when you can uh, start reproducing, then I think yeah, menopause, so men men menarche, uh, menarche, which is, is roughly around twelve, thirteen years old, plus or minus a little from person to person. Uh, and then after puberty, biologically, female fertility increases from that point and uh, peaks somewhere. Do you do you have a rough idea on where the peak is? Um, uh, you're quizzing me? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know if anybody knows. I think uh, it's thought to be in the mid-20s, mid to late-20s. But um, I think some of that information actually comes from like the early 1900s and that, or, or earlier. And that things may have changed along the way. Uh, and then, you know... There is some thought that in the 30s that both fertility and and maternal health 
would start to take a decline. And uh, somewhere around the age of 45, there's a, a, a big decline in terms of tr trying to get pregnant and succeeding to a live birth. And then also um, menopause happens, and then the fertility cycle sort of closes. The natural fer fertility cycle sort of closes. So within that little rough sketch of female fertility, when is the best time to have a baby? I would not give a biological answer to that question. Uh, you know, I think I think having a child, there's, um, you know, there's there's tremendous uh, emotional and psychological and financial and spiritual ramifications to that. Um, so that answer is going to vary wildly depending on the life that that woman is 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 leading. Sure, I agree with you. The biological <clears throat> is a factor. And even when the peak biological time is, may not coincide with when the right sociological time is, and um, and and they they all have to be taken into account. Biologically, though, in the late twenties, you're you're or very early thirties, you're less. Just all of us are less likely to have chronic health problems. Um, the rates of miscarriage are lower, ectopic pregnancy are lower, the rates of stillbirth are lower. Am I making that up, or is that? Um, no, that's all true. Those things are all true. Um, there are also uh, generalizations, which, um, you know, in the work that I do, it's something that I violently resist, is, you know, putting people into categories and, and, and treating them all the same. Uh, for example, you could have a, a woman who's in her mid-20s who is maybe not at the peak of her health and uh, is overweight and maybe has a touch of diabetes and hypertension and decides she doesn't like the way her life is going and sets about to, you know, changing her lifestyle, eating healthy, starts exercising, loses weight, and maybe... She'll be in a better uh, position. Maybe in her 30s, she's actually in much better condition than she was in her 20s. So I, I think it always, you know, comes down to the specifics of, you know, that particular woman and her particular life. Certainly what you said is generally true that, you know, as, as you get older, uh, fertility starts to decline. It gets harder and harder to get pregnant in the first place. The If you successfully conceive, the chances that you're going to have a miscarriage uh, is rising. Um, the older you are, the higher the, the percentage chance of miscarriage. So from that point of view, as a general rule, you know, I might agree with you that in in some very vague general sense, maybe the twenties is the best time to have a baby, but I I certainly would never, you know, want to discourage women who are thinking of having a child in their thirties, uh, you know, dissuade them from doing that. Sure, and what you said I think earlier is very important too. I wouldn't either want someone to feel like they need to have the baby in their twenties just because they're still in their twenties to need to have the baby now or they can't have a healthy baby later because, as you mentioned, if you trample all over not being mature enough, not being financially settled, not finding if you wanted to the right partner to have a baby with, having your career advanced to the point where you want, those things can be devastating on the other side. And so just, you know, having a, a slight increase or even a significant increase in biological health um, naturally because you're younger may be very much outweighed by not being right, you know, in the right mind frame or or 
sociological position to have a baby at that moment. So there's a lot to juggle. Yeah. What do you think, Doc? Well, I think it'd be interesting because I don't think that there's as many studies currently for the age groups that are younger, like in their 20s, they're in how much um, like the rise of autoimmune diseases, like our general population has changed um, drastically over the last five years also. So I don't know if there's as much research. It would be interesting to see to me what the rates are of miscarriage in 20s now and 30s and 40s, because I think it's changed. I don't think there's a secure grasp on, you know, now in your 20s, sometimes, like he's saying, there's there's a lot more going on in your 20s now than there used to be, just from environmental, like environmental uh, exposure to certain things, like uh, what's in our food, what we're eating. A lot of those have significantly changed. So I think it would be very nice to have a better influx of new research to see what those statistics yeah, are. Yeah, that'd be great. Are you busy? Yeah, could you do that? <laughs> Apparently I'm working in your office now. So <laughs> just on Sunday. So we'll just start that, you know. Um, but that's what I think. I also I also do think that that's the stress alone, because stress has a major um, effect on health, that if you, if you do have the baby at a time that you're not ready and it creates that kind of stress for you, then you're not doing anything even biologically to help yourself um, versus waiting a little bit longer. I also do see, as you mentioned earlier, first of all, I love the, I love the, the concept of a touch of diabetes. Because um, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, because usually when people hear, you know, you have diabetes, whether it's gestational or otherwise, it hits them like a ton of bricks. So it's nice to know you can just have a little touch of diabetes. Yeah. Just a taste of it. Um, well, actually, I mean, actually, as it turns out, uh, any any variable that you look at, any condition you look at, I, things always fall on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I really wasn't putting any serious thought into <laughs> you know that choice of words, um, actually, I do take care of a lot of diabetic women, and for some, it's really just a touch. It's really a very mild condition, and they're, they're not that much different than women without diabetes. And there are other women that have very serious, tremendous, hard to control, you know, really difficult diabetes. And um, you could probably say the same thing about maternal age and the impact it has, you know, on pregnancy. So age 35 is one thing where you, for the first time, begin to fall into this category. And and 38 is something else. Is it really? 41 is something else. 45 is something else. Are those, are those textmark, uh, textbook benchmarks? Um, well, 35 has, has always uh, been, at least uh, from the time I was trained moving forward, 35 was always the age that marked advanced maternal age. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, that distinguished uh, that group of women. Is it at, uh, at midnight on that day? Is it exactly <laughs> the date, that, the time that you were born? It is. Okay. Absolutely. I was at, at a home birth, actually, uh, as a doula with a woman who was 34 and went into labor on her birthday. And um, she went past midnight. And I was like, oh, my God, you're advanced maternal age. But, but you gave birth three hours later. Well, so. it, it's not actually defined by when you give birth. It's de- defined by when the due date is. The advanced maternal age. Yeah. Oh, so if if uh, if you're going to be 35 at when the due, due date. Yeah. But that then means you're in the club. But that means if you give birth two weeks early, you lived your whole pregnancy as advanced maternal age, but for not. <laughs> okay. 
I like to think things through uh, sometimes. Really? So that's how it is. It's not how old you are it's, when you yeah. get pregnant. Right. That's interesting. And the due dates are so accurate that that makes sense. And I think it's only really because uh, you have to make a definition. And, right, because due dates are not that accurate. And uh, so that's that's how the definition is made. Your, your age on the day of the due date. And is that because their hormones change at that point? Like what what I guess are parts of the criteria that created the name advanced maternal age? I think um, prim- primarily the the most salient observation is that as the age of the mother climbs, we see a higher and higher incidence of certain genetic conditions of the baby, the most common one being Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because of the eggs? Uh, Meaning if you were to freeze eggs at an earlier age, would you avoid that? Yeah. I think it's primarily related to that. So um, the, um, the, this, the cells of reproduction that we make, so the, in the female, the, her ovaries make the eggs. As I mentioned earlier, they're actually present at the time of birth. So if you get pregnant at age 25, you ovulated a 25-year-old egg, well, 25 in some months. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you get pregnant at the age 40, you ovulated a 40-year-old egg. So you can just I- imagine uh, the, you know, that affects the health or the, or the overall quality of those eggs or the likelihood that there'll be some kind of error during the process of fertilization. You know where my mind goes with this is like, should everybody just freeze eggs at 25? Well, um, it would be something you could think about if in vitro fertilization was not as expensive as it is. So that would certainly be cost prohibitive. And it would also be something you might think about if in vitro fertilization had zero risks, which it doesn't have zero risks. Right. You forget about that. Yeah. So um, based on on those couple of limiting factors, we're probably stuck with most of us uh, trying to reproduce naturally. Um, some people, uh, some some <laughs> women though do um, this. This actually is a very serious consideration uh, in some circumstances. Uh, for example, if you're not certain that you're going to be reproducing anytime soon, uh, and that could be for various reasons, and you're concerned about, let, let's say, I think I am maybe going to try to have a baby at age forty, but I don't know if I want to do you know, use my 40-year-old egg, so maybe I'll freeze some at age 34 with the thought that I'll use them later. Um, now, the the current status of that science, I have to say I'm not totally up on because it's a little well, bit outside good news my area. For you. We have a whole episode with Dr. Shaheen Gadir, reproductive endocrinologist. That would be the perfect person to talk on about. On fertility preservation. Yeah. Check it out. It's actually a very, um, it's a very informative episode. Uh, you are an OBGYN. And a perinatologist. What is the difference? Well, an OBGYN has completed an OBGYN residency, and that sometimes we use the the, the term generalist, and they can do a lot of, a lot of, a lot of different things. They can do prenatal care, deliver babies, uh, and they're usually limited to um, pregnancies without real major complications. And they also do... Which is most pregnancies. Which is most pregnancies. And they also do uh, gynecology. And so that can entail a lot of things. It can entail contraception. It can entail 
dealing with abnormal pap smears. It can uh, entail uh, taking care of issues related to um, incontinence, um, GYN surgeries uh, related to the female genital tract. So anytime you need surgery relating to some problem in the ovaries or the uterus or cervix or vagina, it's a gynecologist that does all that kind of surgery. Mm -hmm. um, they can, uh, in, in some settings, will deal with um, uh, straightforward, simple infertility cases, uh, and they can... So is it also the version of urologist for women? There is a specialty within OB-GYN that's called uh, a urogynecologist, and that's a specialist beyond a generalist OB-GYN. But gynecologists can can do some urogynecology, um, and OB-GYNs vary a lot. Some of them are weighted a little heavier to the OB side. Doing more birth and pregnancy. Doing more birth and pregnancy, and some of them... Uh, are more heavily weighted to the GYN side and do more surgery. Not waking up at nighttime. Yeah, so there, 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 there's sort of a lot of different manifestations of the of the OB/GYN, but um, they have the ability to sort of cross all of these different, you know, areas and and hmm. uh, take care of all of these issues. Almost like an undifferentiated stem cell. Yeah, exactly. So then, <laughs> when you go, uh, uh, you do your OB/GYN residency and you finish you can then function as a generalist or you can do some further training in a subspecialty area where you really focus on that. So perinatology or maternal fetal medicine is one of those specialty areas. Infertility is another one. Mm -hmm. Reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Uh, so you referred to that. You're having an upcoming guest uh, in that well, area. Well, we had him already. Oh, you had him already? Yeah, Great. it was delicious. Um, GYN oncology is another specialty. GYN oncology. So cancer mm -hmm. of the uh, genital tract. And then there's, there's sort of a growing specialty of minimally invasive surgery where uh, gynecologists who focus on, uh, you know, these, these minimally invasive surgical techniques. Um, family planning is another area. There's another growing uh, specialty, which is um, pediatric gynecology. What does that mean? Uh, oh, pediatric gynecology. So right. for kids. Right. Uh, and it's an interesting gynecological issues. It's in an kids. interesting gap because um, you have what kind of things do kids come in for that would require a specialty? I'm just out of ignorance. Don't well, know. Probably like UTI. Uh, on, well, like they can have a they can have a lot of things ranging from congenital problems with uh, you know birth defects in the genital oh. tract. There there can be infections. There can be tumors. All all kinds of things, and it's. Uh, the idea of a specialty pediatric gynecologist is interesting because uh, it, it's sort of a it's a, it's sort of a little bit of a gap because a lot of gynecologists don't do a lot of pediatrics and, you're and not pediatricians don't do gynecology and vice versa yeah so mm -hmm. it, so actually I think there is you know room for that specialty but anyway that's the difference between a general OB/GYN and a perinatologist so what I do is focus more on Pregnancies that are more complicated, either by some kind of maternal condition or the baby has some kind of birth defect or other problem that needs some kind of specialized care. And and I, my experience is most perinatologists really just don't really do obstetrics anymore. They mostly consult with obstetricians on their more challenging cases. Yeah, so that's a very common um, structure. The perinatologist just does ultrasounds and consultations. And the obstetrician will do sort of basic prenatal care and then manage the delivery. But you do both. Just because I love it. 
Because is that really why? Yeah. Oh. That is really why. So you consult with other obstetricians? As a maternal fetal medicine, I do. So they, they, they have their own patients. They refer them to me, do the consultation. They still uh, are taken care of by their primary OB-GYN. And at the same time you do obstetrics, you work with women who are pregnant and deliver babies. Right. And um, and it's not just a higher risk, quote unquote, more complex. You just you're a general OB as well, right? Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe if I get pregnant. How old are you? I am in my. I'm 44, so I still have a window. Okay. It's closing. I could see the crack <laughs> is thin, but there's I'm still good. a little space. I still got some years. You got plenty of years. You're gonna have to represent. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, all right. I think what I want to do is take a little break. And then when we come back, I really want to find out. So from your perinatology hat, I mean, I assume that the older someone is during pregnancy, the more their their OB is going to want to consult with a perinatologist. So you must be very well versed with uh, pregnancy over 35. And um, you're also kind of one of the more laid back of the obstetrician perinatologist combinations that uh, uh, I know. So what happens is, uh, really is, on a regular basis in my office, I see very strong, very healthy, both mind and body women coming in who are 35, 38, 41, um, and they're they're terrified. Like the doctors put a lot of fear into them that because they're over 35, they just expect things to go wrong left and right. And I'm like, wait a second, that's one piece of your clinical profile. Look at the rest of your profile. So I want to find out from you and all your experience um, what someone can actually expect and and how things might go. Um, They might take into consideration some differences. Don't go away. We're going to be right back with Dr. Emiliano Shavira. I have an incredible offer for you for my friends at Needed. An astounding 95% of women aren't meeting their omega-3 needs. Omega-3 fatty acids, especially DHA and EPA, are crucial for both mother and baby. They support brain and eye health, maternal mood, immunity, and much more. But it can be hard to get enough omega-3 from diet alone, especially during pregnancy when many people are averse to eating fish. And if you've ever taken a fish oil pill, you know just how unpleasant that can be. That's why I'm excited to share that my friends at Needed have revolutionized the omega-3 supplement with two different options designed specifically for mamas. An omega-3 powder that blends into smoothies and a pill option that tastes like fresh citrusy bergamot. Both are sustainably sourced from vegan algae, not fish. Both are great options for nausea and sensitive prone mamas. Needed's Omega-3 powder is delivered in liposomes, nature's very cool way of protecting and delivering Omega-3 just like in breast milk. Needed's Omega-3 is clinically proven to be five times better absorbed than fish oil pills. The powder is mild tasting and it pairs great with Needed's prenatal multi-powder and collagen protein powder in a daily smoothie. If powder isn't your thing, Needed's got you covered with those Omega-3 plus capsules, which have a pleasant citrus flavor. Needed is sharing an awesome pre-order discount just for my listeners. Buy two, get one free on either Omega-3 option, powder or capsules. You can stock up on either one or try them both. With this exclusive discount, use code 3BERLIN, the number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Put three Omega-3s in your cart, use the code number 3BERLIN at thisisneeded.com. Buy two, get one free. 
Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, here with co-host Dr. Kristen Palacy, and continuing our discussion of advanced maternal age with Dr. Emiliano Shavira. All right, we're talking about having babies in your 30s and 40s. So tell me, like, practically speaking, are there differences? Are there things that you do differently when you manage a pregnancy uh, for someone who's over 35? Um, it, differences are subtle. Uh, there's there's not tremendous differences uh, in caring for a mom over age 35 versus under. Um, I, I would start off addressing uh, the, the comment that you made at the end of the last segment that there's so much anxiety surrounding the notion of an advanced maternal age pregnancy. And you know, you, the, the, you use the term high risk. And very often my, my specialty that I practice is referred to as high-risk pregnancies. And um, it's a term that I absolutely despise. And uh, it, it really just makes me want to go jump off a cliff. <laughs> Actually, sometimes I kind of want to do that anyway. It just seems fun. Have you ever done it? Not yet. Okay. But cliff diving sounds kind of cool to me. Anyway, the um, it you know, sounds the... cool to me for you to go cliff diving. <laughs> uh, okay, <laughs> it's gonna one of the little squirrel suits. Yeah. Okay. I just uh, I don't think I fit into my speedos anymore, but otherwise I would. I'll get you a bigger speedo. Okay. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> um, so the thing about this term high risk pregnancy is that it's undefined, and when I when I hear that term, I you know honestly. I don't know what it's talking about. So what, what actually, how, how high does the risk have to get before it's high? Hmm. You know, like is it 1% higher compared to the population average? 3% higher? 10%? Like at what point does it get called a, a high-risk pregnancy? And then the other question is risk of what exactly? What, what is the risk that we're worried about? So because this term is so ill-defined, and it's also thrown around left and right. It's, you know, if you sneeze once in mid-pregnancy, all of a sudden you're labeled, you know, high-risk pregnancy. It's just this this term is used so liberally. Uh, I, I think it, and on the face of it, it just sounds very scary, right? High risk, ooh, something's going to go wrong. When in fact, the reality is by far the most likely outcome of any pregnancy is that it's going to be a successful pregnancy. And if you fall into one of these categories that is a, you know, quote-unquote high-risk pregnancy, it means however many percentage points, uh, you know, statistically, you can see that you're more likely to have one of these adverse outcomes. But even though that's the case, it's still much more likely that you're going to have a normal, healthy outcome. And that's that's the most likely way that the pregnancy is going to end. Oh, that's boring. <clears throat> it is, and and I, I you know <laughs> I think these these statistics should usually be reassuring rather than scary. But in general, during prenatal care, we don't give people actual numbers, and we don't tell them what their absolute risk of things are. We just use term like, "Well, you're a high risk pregnancy," which uh, it it just it almost makes it sound like that's a crappy term. There's more likely something going to go wrong than it is to go well. Right. So it's really maybe more accurate term would be the difference between an incredibly low risk pregnancy to an ultra low risk pregnancy. Right. You know. Both of those sound fine. Right. Um, so uh, in terms of uh, the, the actual risks of 
um, having a pregnancy over age 35. We mentioned one previously. There is a higher chance that you might have a baby with some genetic condition, for example, Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if we, let's say um, we talk about a 20-year-old, it might be something in the neighborhood of one in a thousand. One in a thousand pregnancies will turn out to have Down syndrome. By age 35, that number's gone up to about one in 250. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's four times higher. Okay. And you can say that and make it sound really scary. It's four times higher. But if you say your odds are one in 250, I don't know. To me, that just seems, you know, the the vast majority of babies to moms 35 years old are not going to have Down syndrome. It's just that one out of 250. And is that including... Genetic predispositions, like like medical history of a person, or is that just a general? Just because of age. Just because, yeah. For these types of conditions, uh, it's it's really mostly re- related to age, and okay. it's influenced uh, sort of minimally by family history. So we, we do have a lot of women come in that you know my my I have a cousin with Down syndrome, and it doesn't change your risk profile that much. It's really more or less driven by age. But there are tables that give what the actual risks are depending on your age. And then the other thing is over the years, uh, genetic testing has improved. So we can actually make these diagnoses earlier in pregnancy. How early? Uh, the, the first, the earliest testing can be done is a blood test that's called uh, NIPT, non-invasive prenatal test. And that can be done as early as 10 weeks. Hmm. Non-invasive because it's a blood test as opposed Correct. to poking it's just the a baby. blood test uh, off of the mom's arm. At how many weeks? Ten weeks. Wow. And, and, and how, how accurate is it? So for Down syndrome, it'll pick up uh, as much as 98% of cases, which is an improvement over the prenatal screen that we've had for uh, many, many years, which in a, in a 35-year-old, we may get up to somewhere between 85 and 90% uh, pickup rate. Are there a significant number of false positives? There are false positives. Uh, so that's why the NIPT is considered a screening test and it's not a diagnostic test. You would never want to make any decisions based on an NIPT test. Um, if it were to come out positive, that we don't know at that point in time if the baby has Down syndrome or not. Uh, the younger you are, the more likely it is to be a false positive. Mm-hmm. The older you are, the, the less the likely. likely it is, so it's accurate. <clears throat> but, um, are there false negatives? There are false negatives. Oh, so there's uh, both. So just because you pass the screening test doesn't mean 100% that there's no Down syndrome. Right, right. But it, but it does have a 98% pickup rate. So that means if the baby does have Down syndrome, 98% of the time, this blood test is going to find it. So there's a low false negative. Yeah. And perhaps a medium false positive. Yeah. Depending on age range. Now, how, how once you, you've done... Do you follow up with a more invasive test if you get the positive, non-invasive? Well, that's, that's, so we have a discussion about that, and, and more invasive testing is offered. Mm-hmm. Um, a mom may make the decision that, well, e- even though we're not 100% certain about the diagnosis, she doesn't want to risk the diagnostic testing, mm-hmm. and she accepts the fact that the baby may have Down syndrome. That's what it looks like based on the testing, and she may decide not to do it. Somebody else um, may really want to have this question answered definitively, and we'll move on to do the diagnostic test, which very early in pregnancy could be um, CVS, mm-hmm. chorionic villus sampling, and you can sort of think of that as a biopsy of the placenta. Okay. Because the placenta and the baby share the same genetics. 
So you can the, tell. Yeah, the placenta is basically a, a fetal organ. That does not have false positives. Um, it does, actually. That, that the, also has false positives. Yeah, the CVS has one unusual thing that can happen, which is there can be one little tiny chunk of the placenta that mutates and then has different genetics than the rest of the placenta and the baby. Ooh. And that's called a confined placental mosaicism. Um, so that's one of the, the pitfalls of the CVS. Versus the amnio? The amnio, which is usually done after 15 weeks and, and typically in, in the neighborhood maybe of around 17 weeks, uh, it does not have that, um, that problem. You're getting amniotic fluid? Right. And so there's cells from the baby's skin floating around in the fluid and that's what you collect and you grow them and you examine them under the microscope. Hmm. But that's uh, considered, that's a diagnostic test. And for all intents and purposes, you would think of that as 100% reliable. All right. I have one more question on this topic and I want to talk more about maternal age. If you know that positively the baby will have Down syndrome and someone wants to keep that baby, do you treat the pregnancy differently? Um, basically, no. Um, so for someone who's going to keep the baby either way, it may not be so advantageous to it, do yeah, more invasive testing. Yeah, it doesn't testing. make a tremendous difference. We we might do um, some additional ultrasound testing mm-hmm. uh, because a Down syndrome baby, they're known to have a higher likelihood of heart defects. Oh, I see. So you might do a, a detailed ultrasound of the heart, which is called an echocardiogram. Uh, some Down syndrome babies can develop problems in the third trimester. One of the common ones is a, a type of intestinal obstruction, which you might actually be able to see on ultrasound. So we would usually do an ultrasound in the third trimester to look for that. Whereas in a routine pregnancy, there's not automatically a reason for an ultrasound in the third trimester. So there are little subtle differences. But by and large, the prenatal care is the same, the delivery is the same, the birth is the same. But those are ultrasounds, so that means even if even if you weren't sure, if you got a positive non-invasive test, you could do those extra ultrasounds without having to do a more invasive test. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about risk, you know, the risk going up a little bit of things like this. And it's interesting because risk is perceived differently by different people. Somebody will hear one in a thousand and think that's very high. Someone will hear one in a thousand and think it's very low. Someone Absolutely. will hear one in 250 and think it's very high or 4% and think it's high. And someone else will hear that and think it's very low, which I think is all the more reason why as providers, we just have to provide the data and let right. them decide how do you feel about this. Absolutely. What other things are we looking at both in terms of, you know, what elevated risk of what and managing a pregnancy differently just because somebody's over 35 or a birth differently yeah. because someone's over 35? So, um, in, I'll just I want to make one last point about the uh, the genetic issues just before we move on, which Fine. is which is that <laughs> once you complete the evaluation and you've answered that question, that question is now off the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, let's say um, let's say you're 40 years old and you're very concerned about having a baby with Down syndrome, and you do the testing and you discover that your baby does not have Down syndrome. That issue is now gone. It's irrelevant. That risk is no more, no that, longer that elevated risk is, for is, you. Is is no more. It's zero. Um, or you know, or you know, conversely, you discover it is Down syndrome. Then um, now you know. know. You're, you're, now you know, and you're going to decide what to do with that. Um, so there's in in uh, so this tends to be one of the most common concerns among women over age 35. 
but the vast majority of them are not going to have a baby with one of these genetic conditions. And once you do the testing and figure out that it doesn't apply to you, that issue disappears. It's thin so air. It's not there anymore. pretty much by the second trimester, that's uh, not no longer a discussion. Yeah, and potentially even as early as the first trimester. Mm-hmm. So now moving on to your question about what things can actually happen to you. What I would say is there are certain common complications of pregnancy that can happen to anybody, whether you're 20 years old, 30 years old, 38 years old. And these are things like uh, developing gestational diabetes somewhere along mid-pregnancy. That can happen to anybody. It's just a little more common among older women. A touch. Just a touch. Yeah. Uh, it may be related to the fact that most of us um, are, you know, progressively gaining weight as we get older. So you're more likely to be heavier at age 35 than you were when you were 25. It's definitely true in my case. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said, some people are getting healthier as they get older. Some people so. may be healthier uh, at an older age than they were at a younger age. Another common um condition that happens in pregnancy is is uh, is a condition known as preeclampsia where you can think of it as you you it's like you're having a reaction to the pregnancy and you're getting sick from the pregnancy and one of the ways we know that this is happening is all of a sudden your blood pressure starts to elevate mm-hmm. it's something we very commonly see usually at the end of pregnancy okay. so maybe 35 weeks 37 weeks 39 weeks and it's usually a mild condition that's not particularly dangerous to either mom or baby. However, uh, it is well known that preeclampsia, if you don't do anything about it and you let the pregnancy continue, over time can worsen and turn into a very serious condition that becomes dangerous for mom and baby. So that's a minority of cases. Is that eclampsia? Well, eclampsia is one of the worst manifestations, and that 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 refers to where you've gotten to the point where you're having seizures. Okay. So preeclampsia is sort of the syndrome before you have a seizure, but there can be dangerous things that happen to a mom with preeclampsia. So preeclampsia by itself can be a, a, a dangerous condition even without the seizures. I see. Once you've se- had a seizure, then we call it eclampsia. So. Is eclampsia fairly uncommon now that we are constantly monitoring for preeclampsia? And then, I mean, are there treatments you can do other than getting the baby out? At this point, um, we have not developed a therapy that makes it go away. So what what we do is we look for it, we screen for it, and that's a, a big component of, of the, the medical side of prenatal care. Uh, once we identify it, we get uh, we observe moms very carefully, more so than what you do uh, during routine prenatal care, and hopefully we can allow the pregnancy to go as far as 37 weeks, get to term, and then usually the routine at that time is to proceed with delivery, because we know that some of these cases will uh, progress and develop into something dangerous. More, more so you kind of want to deliver the baby before you get there. How common is it for preeclamptic women to then develop HELP? So HELP is another version of preeclampsia, which you identify on blood tests. And HELP stands for hemolytic anemia. So your red blood cells are kind of getting broken up within your 
blood vessels and elevated liver enzymes. So there's an impact on the liver and low platelets. So platelets is that little particle in your blood that forms blood clots and it helps control bleeding in, in, in your body. It's and a terrible combination. Yeah, it's just a particularly nasty version of um, HELP syndrome. And it's part it of the reason why up. when we, the preeclampsia syndrome, and so it's part of the reason why when we see moms with preeclampsia, blood work is involved. It's one of the things you're looking for is um, HELP syndrome. And again, no treatment other than getting baby out. Um, I mean, that's the definitive therapy that cures the problem. There's other stuff we may do along the way. Um, we may give blood pressure medication to keep it out of a dangerous range. If it looks like the baby's going to be born prematurely, there may be stuff that we do to help the baby, like giving um, steroid treatments, which are very clearly shown to be helpful to a baby that's born preemie. For breathing, to help them breathe? It reduces uh, breathing complications. It reduces um, some other complications that preemie babies can have, like bleeding in the brain, bleeding in the intestines. Um, So it it reduces the um, frequency of some pretty serious complications that preemies can have. Uh, We also give magnesium in the IV to moms to uh, reduce their chances of having a seizure. And it turns out if you deliver a preemie baby, the magnesium helps the baby as well at reducing the likelihood that the baby will develop a condition known as cerebral palsy, Hmm. which is a neurologic condition where they're not able to coordinate their movements normally. So that can affect walking and, and, and control of, uh, you know, hand and arm movements. So there are things we do besides delivery, but the therapy that is going to make the preeclampsia go away is delivering the baby. So zooming back a little bit, you're saying that in pregnancy over 35, there is an increased chance of preeclampsia? Right. So um, preeclampsia by itself is a, it's a very common, let's say, complication of pregnancy. And we may see it somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10% of pregnancies. And again, any mom can get it. Uh, but there's this interesting paradox where we see it a little more common, commonly at extremes of age. So it's more common in teenagers. Hmm. You've know, you got a 16-year-old giving birth. And then it's more common in women over age 35. And the so the, it's going to be more than, you know, 5 to 10% if, let's say, you're, you're 43 years old. It's going to be more likely that you're going to see uh, preeclampsia in that pregnancy. But you monitor for preeclampsia anyway in anybody. So is there a difference in the way you monitor when somebody's either teenage or over 35? We are going to take a quick commercial break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. (laughs) So I have never seen... uh, My guess is if you survey obstetrician gynecologists around the country, you're going to get a lot of different responses. Variation, yeah. Um, I I have never seen a a formal published guideline that describes changing the way you do prenatal care according to maternal age. Okay. Um, as as far as I know, there's no such pu- uh, published guideline. However, I guarantee you for a fact, you start talking to OBs, and you're going to see all kinds of different things. You're going to see some people will increase the frequency of their visits. Some people will start them on what's called antenatal testing. Uh, where 
you bring the mom in, you do an ultrasound and check the fluid around the baby and listen to the heart rate for about 20 minutes. That's called an NST, non-stress test. Um, Doesn't sound all that non-stressful. Some doctors may do that once a week. Some doctors may do it twice a week. Starting at what point? Uh, I mean, commonly, NSTs will start at 34 weeks, but because there's not a specific guideline, once once practitioners start doing their own little algorithm, you really can kind of see everything on the map. Everything on the map. Do you um, treat the birth any differently? Because I do see patients who are told, I really want your baby by the OB. I really want your baby out by 39 or 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. And uh, versus where, let's say, somebody who's not over 35, they're more comfortable going to 41 or 42 weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, what I like to do is have a conversation about this and get into the numbers and really individualize the birth plan um, for each individual mother. So the concept of delivering a mother a little bit earlier, um, if you look at the the current American College of OBGYN guidelines, what they say is if a pregnancy hits 42 weeks, you've gone two weeks past your due date, they recommend inducing labor and or proceeding with delivery. Because some cases that might be a C-section for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason for that is in the last weeks of pregnancy, there is a, a small risk of stillbirth or sudden fetal, sudden fetal death. You know, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden the baby's heartbeat stops and baby's gone. Um, so at about 40 weeks, the risk of that happening is uh, about 0.5 out of 1,000. So like one out of 2,000 births, this will happen. At any age? That's just a general statistic, uh, not incorporating age. And by by 42 weeks of gestation, this has gone up to a, a couple out of 1,000. So again, it's a fourfold increase in risk. It's still an overall pretty low risk, you know, a couple out of 1,000. But based on these statistics, what has been calculated is if there's a policy of inducing labor, you're going to save about two out of a thousand fetal deaths. Now, from the point of view of the healthcare provider and the hospital who takes care of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women, that's going to make a difference to you over time because you're going to prevent some fetal deaths, which is an incredible thing to do. And for the families that experience a fetal death, I got to tell you, this is one of the most horrific experiences to go through, to lose a baby at, at, at term. And so preventing that is a very, it, it, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful thing. And that's the rationale for, you know, ending pregnancies before they go too far along. From the point of view of the individual, though, if your risk is a couple out of a thousand, you might feel that that risk is acceptable. It goes back to how different people perceive risk. Different people perceive risk. And it depends on how you feel about um, you know, inducing labor versus waiting for uh, a natural labor to ensue. So it, when I talk to women about this, there are some women that even the teeniest, tiniest risk, they don't want it. They say, let's get the baby out. Let's deliver. Other women uh, place a very high value on spontaneous labor, and they find this risk to be acceptable. So it's really kind of tailoring approach to the values of that um, particular woman. 
Now, so this was all just sort of a general overview. The, uh, the American College of OBGYN recommends inducing at 42. Out in the community, it's a very common practice to induce at 41. Mm-hmm. And there, there, I remember reading a survey of gynecologists in the United States, and I don't remember, something like 65, 75% expressed that they have that practice inducing at 41. So it's just a very common practice, practice out in the community. But the concept is the same. You're preventing um, you know, a couple of fetal deaths that, that happened in those last weeks of pregnancy. And how does that change over 35? Okay, so uh, if you look at stillbirth rates by age, it appears to be higher in older moms. So now you can take this sort of population baseline average and multiply it by some kind of risk factor. So, And I wouldn't be able to quote these numbers off the top of my head, but let's say your risk is double or triple you know, compared to the population average. So instead of two out of a thousand, let's say it's four out of a thousand. Okay, so as an individual, you may respond to that very differently. You may feel very uncomfortable that you're in a category of women that your risk of stillbirth is higher than other women. First of all, when you say double, that Mm -hmm. sounds like a lot. Right. Mm -hmm. But when you say four out of a thousand versus two out of a thousand, it doesn't sound that that much different. That's why giving the absolute risk instead of the relative risk makes this whole conversation sound very different. Right. And it's still going to be absorbed different by different people. It's still going to be. So uh, if so, one woman may hear that the risk goes from two out of a thousand to four out of a thousand, and for her that's enough. She doesn't want to take that risk, and she wants the pregnancy. Another woman may hear that and say, I'm comfortable with that. I'm going to continue waiting for natural labor to start. That also, by the way, assumes little or no risk to inducing or doing a cesarean. Right. Because then you would also have to take into account the absolute risk of those interventions. Right. So why isn't the standard of care to individualize care and have it be a conversation between the woman and her doctor? I think that is a fabulous question. You know, it's it's um, my experience with um, institutional maternity care is that it is incredibly protocol oriented, and as time passes, it is becoming increasingly protocol oriented, and there are also policies and procedures uh, within hospitals. And the number of policies and procedures is continuously growing over time. Like if you look at the manual of policies and procedures, you just see this book getting thicker and thicker and thicker and thicker. Now there's a there's a part of that that I think is a value. There's there's um, you know in some sense having different practitioners being all over the map, and hospital A functions this way, hospital B functions this way, and there's no standardization anywhere. I, I don't think that's a good thing. And I think there's a certain degree of standardization that actually improves the quality of care and improves outcomes. But it also has to be done thoughtfully. And there are certain things that need to be standardized. And there are other things that don't lend themselves well to be standardized. The second layer of that is when you have protocols and procedures, one of the things that starts happening, and I see this among physicians, and I see it among hospital administrators, and I see it among nurses, 
is that the thinking part of the brain just turns off. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no analysis, there's no there's no individualization, there's no taking into account other th- other things like you know you talked about the risks of anytime there's a risk of doing something, there's also a risk associated with not doing that thing. And you sort of lose the whole you know big picture and the concept of risks and benefits. And not to cut you, you off, just, but there's there's also a difference between medical risk and liability risk. Sure. And sometimes, as a doctor, you know, medical risk is the risk to your patient, or and in this case, their baby. Absolutely. Whereas liability is the risk to you as the provider, and they don't always go up or down together. Yeah. So Absolutely. a doctor may want to offer only options that have less liability, yeah. even if they're more or less risky to the patient. Yeah. But, you know, just to complete the point is it, people just start following the protocol and they just kind of stop thinking. Robotic. And they they may not know the data that's behind the protocols and they just kind of get used to functioning a certain way. And anytime somebody wants to do something that's off protocol, they, they become very anxious about it. Because then you're also picking up more liability. It's very safe to go with the flow. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more risky for a doctor to individualize care because if you do something that's not community norm. Well, I, I think that's. Um, I think it's easy to think that way, but I don't know if, in fact, it's true. It feels that way. Sure. Um, it you know it on a certain level may feel that way, but maybe your liability is decreased by having a conversation with somebody and listening to them and figuring out what their values are. And tailoring a plan of care that is more in line with what they're looking for. That's crazy talk. Oh, sorry. Is that, a, <laughs> is that even a skill that's still worked on, though? I mean, outside of, I mean, did you learn that in school or did you learn that through experience? And as you've worked with these types of individuals or this, like as you've grown, do you think if you look back at it, it was something that was just inherently part of you and your personality? Or do you think it's something that was cultivated in your diagnosis classes, you know? I think it's more B. I, I, I don't think there's a lot in training. You know, you really get trained in procedures and protocols. And, um, and then on an institutional level, there are heavy pressures on you as a provider to stick with the friggin' protocol. Go with the flow. <laughs> yeah. Go with the flow. Go with the flow. Um, so... So you, so you start off in the medical training learning, you know, procedures and protocols, and then it just gets reinforced and hammered into you on an institutional level. And then there's a lot of time pressures. It's it's harder to individualize care. It takes it more takes time. more time. It takes more effort. It takes more thought. For which you don't necessarily get paid. Yeah, you absolutely don't. So you have to be very motivated to practice that way. I want to put you in my pocket and take you wherever I go. But, um, <laughs> and as you know, um, I want you in my office eight days a week. But... I only have a little time left, so I have two final questions for you on this topic. What is the oldest patient you've worked with in pregnancy? Uh, Me personally, uh, 50-something. Yeah. So I don't remember 51 or 52. I wonder if we the same. I had a a handful of 50-plus-year-olds. 54. 54. We had a 54. And it was her first pregnancy. It was her first pregnancy. And, man, she felt good the whole time. She was amazing. Yeah, I've yeah. had a handful of 50-plus-year-olds, more than one. I felt really bad about myself after working on her. She was in such good shape. <laughs> she was amazing. Happy as a clam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
okay, and then that was just a little factoid. But then also, um, for somebody listening who's over 35, you know, just a, a take-home advice. I mean, we talked about scary things here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that you said that that would be my most important take-home point is all of these things that you're talking about are small increases. And that, for the most part, the risk of any of these things is still incredibly low. And much lower is the chance that it won't happen than the chance that it will happen. But practically speaking, is there anything that someone would do differently if they're in their late 30s or early 40s um, for their pregnancy or getting ready for birth? You know, I I really am a fan of simplicity. And... I think it just gets back to the basics. The things that you're going to do for to prepare for pregnancy are the same things that anybody else is going to do. You're going to try to eat healthy. You want to, uh, you know, do exercise. Just get your general health into a better place. Work on good night's sleep, stress management. Older moms may be more likely to have some kind of medical condition. So if that applies to you, you know, if you have some kind of thyroid condition, diabetes, hypertension, seizures, whatever it is. Those should be addressed and optimized prior to pregnancy. Um, you want to make sure you're on medications that are, you know, acceptable, continue during the pregnancy. You want to get all your conditions are in control. So maybe that applies to you. Maybe, you know, maybe it doesn't. Uh, you want to be a, on a prenatal vitamin with folic acid in it since prior to the pregnancy. Vitamin D deficiency is a, you know, a very common condition among most of us these days since we all live indoors now. Mm-hmm. So I don't get it from the glow from my computer? That's not a... <laughs> uh, you would have to sit pretty close to the computer. I sort of do. Then, yeah. That... <laughs> okay. So yeah. vitamin D then. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I mean, pretty basic stuff. Um, it just doesn't sound like you treat it all that differently. Yeah, not really. I mean, there's, you know, you have the conversation about uh, the genetic testing. The overall structure of prenatal care is the same. Some providers will recommend doing the fetal testing at the end of pregnancy. I mean, you may have individual providers who treat it very differently. Right. And, um, you know, kind of harping on risk all the time and insisting on inductions and just kind of making it into a scary thing. But I, I don't, yeah, I think that's more of the personality of the provider than, you know, there's no published guideline anywhere that says we're supposed to function that way. So I think if I'm, I'm in those shoes, my take-home message would be sort of just how, you know, do the research and find out the the around. absolute numbers. And and if if you feel a certain way and your provider feels a different way, you probably could find a provider who's more in line with yours. Can I plug an online resource? Please. Okay, yeah. so there's a great online resource. If you type into Google evidence-based Ooh, birth. Oh, that's a good one. It's a great she website. She has great stuff. Yeah, so it's put together by a PhD nurse researcher, and what she does is, um, her name is Rebecca Decker. She picks a topic and basically uh, finds all the world literature related to that topic and basically presents what the data is. She breaks it down. So she she has multiple articles on multiple topics, but one of them is this issue of age over thirty five. And oh, so that's great. A, that's a great thank you read and a good place to get a good authoritative. Summary of the evidence. I love reading her stuff. It's so informative and so easy to digest. What about labor and delivery? As somebody gets older, does it become more challenging to to go through the physical journey of labor and birth? That is a really interesting question. 
And it's actually a question that women ask me. Um, so sometimes I'm taking care of these ladies who are over age 35, and we start getting close to uh, the, the delivery date, and they kind of start murmuring about cesarean section. And eventually the concept comes out that they're concerned that their body actually does not have the physical capability of delivering a baby because of their age. And, you know, it, it, it probably just comes, it's just an extension of all the fearful notions that have been pumped into them about somehow once your age, you know, over 35, that something is incredibly different. And I, I usually try to be reassuring about that. You know, it's, it, it's interesting to reflect on the fact that labor is an incredibly physically demanding feat. However, I think about the women that I take care of, and I take care of women who don't do any exercise, completely out of shape, have multiple medical conditions, uh, overweight, and they labor and they deliver their babies. So it's, it, it's something that the body just has the ability to do. And, you know, f- frankly, I just, in my mind, it's not a concern. It's not an, it's not an issue. I, it's interesting that you say that because in my mind, I can very specifically picture two women, one in very in particular who was 42 uh-huh. and fit as could be doing Pilates regularly, yoga regularly, eating really clean and green, but not just now, but for the past 30 years. She's in great shape and has the feeling that because she's over 40, that she won't be able to endure the physical challenge of labor and delivery. So contrasted to a, client, a patient like you just described, um, I mean, she'd, she'd be light years ahead. Right. Yeah. So it's. I think it's just more of a it's more of a fear than any any kind of reality. That makes sense. Yeah. That's a really great way to end. Thank you so much. Uh, Doc, thanks for being here again. We're going to be back for a million and one topics. Um, if you at home have a topic you would like to address in general or with Dr. Shabir specifically and Dr. Palacy, please send us an email to info at informedpregnancy.com. I got a whole lot of questions for you.